You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Cannabis has been legal for less than two weeks and ignorance around the rules is not going to save you from a stiff fine if you break the law. Police are highlighting a recent case where a driver was ticketed for having cannabis open in his car. Kylie Stanton explains the punishment could have been even worse. A violation ticket for consuming cannabis in a vehicle. Nearly two weeks after recreational use of pot officially became legal, the unofficial grace period is over. It would be a $230 ticket. Officers across the country are handing out violations to anyone caught breaking the rules by consuming the drug while in a vehicle. Smoking my lungs. In Saanich, officers have issued their first ticket. And the passenger was smoking cannabis uh, while the driver was operating that vehicle, which is in contravention of the act. It's similar to alcohol. No one in the vehicle can be using it, and it must remain in the packaging, in the trunk, or a locked glove box. This one is minor consuming cannabis. On top of that, you must be the legal age of 19 in B.C. to be in possession of the substance. People that are under that age range can be ticketed for using cannabis. That was the case for an Oak Bay teen this past weekend. After an officer came across the individual parked in a vehicle rolling a joint, he got off lucky. He could have been issued two tickets, one for being a minor and the other for consuming cannabis while in care and control of a vehicle. The detachment posted this photo to Twitter, writing most concerning is he was likely going to drive away under the influence had he not been checked by police. Impaired driving kills people. Why can't we learn that? We need to make sure that we've got national campaigns in place so that uh, young people and, and the public in general understands the, the rules around cannabis. But this is something that is going to require an ongoing effort. In the meantime, the uncertainty opens doors for challenges. With no case law currently in place, disputing the violations is one way to gain some clarity. There's a lot to be determined with respect to whether or not these infractions are being issued uh, on a justifiable basis. Right now, whether or not someone is under the influence of cannabis is largely left up to an officer's subjective opinion about the individual's sobriety. But one thing is clear. Two weeks in, the impacts of legalization are still a bit hazy. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Well, one of the new cannabis processing companies on the Lower Mainland opened its doors today, allowing a behind-the-scenes look at its state-of-the-art facility in Langley. Blisco has about 1,500 marijuana plants in this 12,000-square-foot facility. Right now, it's producing cannabis oil for medicinal uses. The company is launching an app that will allow patients to get a prescription on the go. We're going to be launching a telemedicine app that allow us, our patients, to download an app and register uh, on, our, on our app and then have a video conference call with a nurse practitioner uh, that will allow them to have a prescription for medical cannabis uh, based on their ailment and then they will have the cannabis shipped directly to their, uh, their home residence. Blisco plans to expand its product line for recreational use too, including edibles and vape cartridges. Kettlewell expects those to be legalized sometime next year. Fire broke out aboard a boat being decommissioned on the Fraser River in Surrey this morning. Crews say a salvage company was working on the vessel at the time, removing items from the engine room when the fire sparked up. Vancouver's fireboat was sent out to assist since the vessel was in the middle of the Fraser uh, a river and Surrey fire crews couldn't access it. Thankfully, there were no injuries. There have also been two barge fires on the river in recent months. 
A meatpacking plant has been evacuated in Surrey due to a possible ammonia leak. Police and fire crews are on scene at this hour. The hazmat incident is at 175th and 65A Avenue. At this point, neighboring buildings and homes have not been evacuated. Crews are now preparing to enter the building to measure for toxic gas. And thankfully, there are no injuries to report. The woman who viciously beat and then drowned 14-year-old Rena Verk on Vancouver Island 21 years ago is now going by a different name. Kelly Ellard was convicted in 2005. Last November, she was given day parole, and today we learned the parole board has extended that for another six months. We also learned Ellard has changed her name to Carrie Marie Sim. The report reveals the 35-year-old is now living in a halfway house after completing residential treatment for substance abuse. More than 100 people attended a vigil at UBC this afternoon to honor the 11 lives lost when a gunman burst into a Pittsburgh synagogue over the weekend. Our Sarah McDonald joins us with more on the gathering and how this tragedy has really prompted an outpouring of grief and support. Sarah. Well, Sophie, some poignant and emotional moments here on UBC campus and south of the border today. That vigil wrapping up about an hour ago. But the message that we heard here today is evergreen and it is one that we are hearing right across the, pro the province and the continent, I should say, in light of that massacre on Saturday. Days after the deadliest attack on the Jewish community in American history, the grief is still raw. <laughs> And reverberating from the epicenter of Saturday's massacre at this Pittsburgh synagogue, 11 worshippers killed at the hands of an anti-Semitic lone gunman. And their beloved synagogue is today a crime scene. Now they're being honored and remembered across Canada. Mourners gathering on UBC campus Tuesday for this vigil, organized by a Jewish student group. You know, it's just a, such a chaotic world right now. We all know that. And uh, you almost kind of have to... Accept it. If the good people don't stand out when something really evil has happened, then it looks like nobody really cares about what's going on. The service here coinciding with the first of the funerals for the slain victims. Three of them laid to rest on Tuesday as six others injured recover in hospital. The man who pulled the trigger in custody, officials calling his alleged acts a hate crime. There's no place for hate in our society and when any group is threatened, all groups are threatened. It's important to stand against hate and that's why it's important to be here today. Which is why now more than ever this message is so poignant. I think it's something that's really underestimated is how much people still really hate the Jewish community. Mourners of all different backgrounds, religions and ethnicities united in grief and determination that what happened here won't be repeated. And today's vigil comes one week before Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is set to apologize on behalf of Canada for turning away a boatload of Jewish refugees fleeing Nazi Germany in 1939. It also coincides with U.S. President Donald Trump's visit to Pittsburgh, a polarizing one, as you might imagine, Sophie, and we will have more on that coming up later in the show. We certainly will. All right, Sarah, thank you. Some anxious moments for parents whose children were at daycare when a water main broke in Vancouver yesterday. The daycare is in the basement of one of the properties that quickly flooded. As Aaron MacArthur reports, it happened during nap time with staff scrambling to get the kids to safety. Crews still cleaning up after a flash flood near BC Children's Hospital. A 12-inch main broke open around 2 Monday afternoon. Gushing water tore down the street, into the alley, 
and into people's homes. Man, it was coming out like the earth was shaking like, like somebody pounding a hammer on it. I saw rapid water flowing. I wasn't really sure what to think about it. One of the homes affected by the flood is a licensed daycare. The facility closed today after several feet of water came to rest in the space used for infant care. I had no anticipation of what I was going to. I thought there'd be a little bit of water. The flood happened at nap time for the toddlers. Eight kids in total had to be picked up off the floor and moved to higher ground. Mala Finkelman praising the work of the staff for acting so quickly. All the kids were sleeping. There's eight of them and two attendants. And they actually told me when I came that my son was the last one that they woke up because the rest of the kids were screaming and crying and wet and my son slept through it all. They are heroes. They saved his life. They saved everyone's life. And that is part of their call of duty and their line of work. But what they did was unbelievable. And the way that they did it and the speed that they acted in was fantastic. Now the worry is when the daycare can get back open. Childcare spots notoriously hard to find on the west side. Every day it's closed as one more day parents will be scrambling to find alternative arrangements. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. On a busy summer Sunday at Granville Island, it was comparable to winning the lottery, scoring one of those free parking spots. But that feeling is about to be a thing of the past as year-round pay parking will soon be the norm. Catherine Urquhart has more on how much it'll cost you and when it will take effect. Fresh flowers, fruits and vegetables, and plenty of seafood. What's not to love about Granville Island? It's got a nice atmosphere. I love that there's just a little bit of everything. But that love fest can easily go sideways on a busy day. During the summer when the tourists are here, it's pretty difficult to find space. Now, Granville Island says it hopes to ease parking congestion by having all pay parking between 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. $2 an hour in winter, $3 in the summer months, beginning June 2019. With parking uh, being standard across the island for all spaces, that will eliminate the congestion that goes with people circling around to look for a space. The paid parking will also be hugely lucrative. Now it brings in more than $2 million a year, and that with only 40% of stalls being metered. Any estimates on how much money this might bring in? Um, we don't have estimates of the revenue. Um, all of the revenue that we generate from parking does go back into the island's operation and maintenance. Longtime merchants say they're concerned that pay parking could turn people off. You know, when you're trying to run a business, you know, you're trying to do it seamlessly. And controversy isn't always a good thing. I think it's going to be a screw-up for a little bit, maybe for a week or two. And then I think after that point, I think everyone's just going to readjust. And if you really don't want to pay for parking while you load up on oranges or whatever, remember, as of June, all parking will be free before 11 a.m. and after 6 p.m. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The ballots are in the mail, and next month, the Premier and the Leader of the Opposition will debate the options for electoral reform. Keith Baldry joins us from Victoria. Keith, there is a lot to discuss here. There's a lot at stake. British Columbians have to decide to either stick with what we've got, first past the post, or change to proportional representation. Don't let your eyes glaze over. It's not nearly as boring as it sounds. Am I right? 
Well, we hope not, uh, Chris. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, it took some uh, wheeling and dealing behind the scenes work, but we finally got an agreement between the two leaders. So Premier John Horgan will face off against uh, BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. Here's the time and date. It's going to be on this station, but it's going to be uh, uh, November 8th, Thursday, November 8th, from 7 to 7.30 p.m. here on Global and also on CKNW and also on our partner in this, CBC TV and CBC Radio. And it's uh, going to be followed by a post-game show, uh, Seen on BC One and heard on CKNW, where we and a number of our guests will dive down and digest and analyze about just exactly uh, what the arguments were from both leaders. So Andrew Wilkinson will be defending first past the post. John Horgan will be advocating for switching to some sort of proportional representation model, and hopefully the viewers and listeners will be educated, at least more educated than they are now, when it comes to filling out that ballot. All right, look forward to hosting that uh, post-game show with you as well. Should be a good debate. Thanks, Keith. All right. Right now, though, it's a prime example of the current teacher shortage and the added complexity when it comes to finding enough French immersion teachers. As Grace Key explains, one grade four class in Abbotsford should be learning in French, but their teacher doesn't speak the language. Students in a grade four class at Ecole Sandy Hill Elementary in Abbotsford have been without a French immersion teacher for the past three weeks. This came after their teacher got another job closer to home. With the shortage of French-speaking teachers, parents are worried when they'll be able to get a replacement. Uh, we know that one applicant is currently being recruited by four school districts in the lower mainland area. Students came home telling their parents they were no longer encouraged to speak French in class because they had an English substitute teacher. And Jolene says that's caused some anxiety with her daughter. She's said she's stressed out. And when she used those words as a nine-year-old, not wanting to go to school, she's extremely bright. She loves school. The shortage has been a problem for the last decade, and the NDP government says it's been working aggressively to try to increase the number of French-speaking teachers. The Ministry of Education, since we formed the new government, has taken the unusual step of funding new seats at BC universities to specifically train French immersion uh, uh, courses. And uh, we've also uh, continued to aggressively recruit out of province, even internationally. That won't help parents at Sandy Hill who fear their children will fall behind in their French curriculum. And they want to know what steps will be taken to ensure that doesn't happen while they wait for a new teacher. One of the suggestions was maybe to have the other grade four French teachers perhaps rotate through in the meantime and that wasn't met with any cooperation or even consideration. Parents will be addressing the school board hoping to get some answers. Grace Key, Global News. Another dump of snow is expected to hit the mountain highways. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us with more on what drivers need to know and the timeline of all of this. Christy? Thanks, Soph. Yes, so we're trying to get the word out there after what happened over the weekend. We are expecting snow on most of the mountain passes across southern BC starting this evening. Now, the, the snow hasn't pushed in just yet, but it will develop through the evening hours and continue right through the morning hours tomorrow. That freezing level dropping as low as 800 metres in a lot of these areas. So, the Coquihalla, Hope, Princeton and the Connector could see up to 10 centimetres. Cooney Pass up to 20 and Rogers Pass up to 8. Now, tomorrow afternoon conditions will ease off, although the Coquihalla and Allison Pass still could see light snow on and off through the evening hours tomorrow. All right. Thanks, Christy. 
Vancouver's Renfrew Ravine used to be one of the city's least accessible parks, but not anymore. The city's last wild ravine is now much easier to navigate with staircases, an accessible walkway into the trail system, and bridges across Still Creek. The Vancouver Park Board spent a million dollars renewing Renfrew Community Park and the six-hectare Renfrew Ravine Park, which serves primarily as a nature sanctuary. Renfrew Ravine and the Renfrew Community Parks are the only place in Vancouver where you can find a salmon-bearing creek in a natural ravine environment. All of these improvements will lead, we hope, to enhanced access to this special place for nature lovers of all ages and abilities. The master plan for the Renfrew Ravine and Community Parks also includes a new off-leash dog park near Renfrew Street and 22nd A Avenue. New evidence is emerging tonight about why it can be so hard for gambling addicts to resist the lure of the casino. As Linda Aylesworth explains, UBC research suggests all those blinking lights and flashy jingles may be promoting risky decision making. Casinos are many things. What they aren't is calming. You can't uh, help but you know feel overwhelmed by all the sensory stimulation. It's the, the lights, it's, uh, it's, it's the jingles, the sounds. Why are casinos such frenetic places? That was the focus of a recent study out of the University of British Columbia. We wanted to see if uh, audiovisual stimuli, like the ones you would encounter in, in the casino, you know, the, the, the lights, the jingles, could influence how people make uh, decisions. And so they created a test, a video game, and recruited 131 participants to play along. These pie charts here, they represent your odds of winning in green versus not winning in white. They measured how much participants' pupils dilated, a sign of excitement, and recorded their behavior. Those who were offered a quiet version of the game tended to play it safe. Those who got the version with casino-like tunes and flashing coins played the odds. People preferred the high-risk, potentially high-reward options that ultimately resulted in them earning less money. It's not the first time they've seen such results. Two years ago, they completed a similar study with rats. Turns out that we're just as vulnerable as the rats to the risk-promoting effects of sound and light stimuli. As for why audiovisual stimulation seems to bring out the risk-taker in us, that's the subject of their next study. Because if we do find that there are certain people who are particularly susceptible to those stimuli, then we have to ask what role could this play in uh, making people addicted to gambling. The hope is that if we can understand the neurobiology behind this effect, then maybe we can come up with treatments and ways to stop it, particularly for those who are vulnerable to gambling disorder. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. A city on the water, underwater due to severe flooding. Venice has been inundated by an exceptional high tide. The rush of water left three quarters of the famed Lagoon City submerged, including the landmark St. Mark's Square. At its height, strong winds raised the water level to more than 1.5 meters in the worst flooding Venice has seen in almost a decade. And strong winds and heavy rain thrashing the Italian peninsula in the last 48 hours. Yeah, the storms have left at least 10 people dead and a trail of extensive damage across the country. 
The sun has finally come out here in Rome after the uh, capital and the rest of the country have been battered for the past couple of days by severe weather. Here in Rome we had torrential rains and winds that were blowing at a speed of up to 60 miles per hour that caused many branches and entire trees to fall on roads and on cars. Many other roads are closed here in the city, but luckily only injuries have been reported. The same cannot be said for the rest of the country where the bad weather has caused at least nine victims. We saw in the rest of the country have sea surges with waves of up to 22 uh, feet and uh, landslides. The worst affected area seems to be Liguria, uh, the coastal region in Rapallo, a popular spot. The waves broke down the walls of a small harbor, causing the super yachts of the mega ridge there to crash against the shore and pile on top of each other. The, the sun is back up, but uh, the weather forecasters say that more of the same, or rather, of the bad weather will come back as early as Wednesday. Claudio Lavanga in Rome for NBC News. The U.S. president visiting Pittsburgh today and the scene of the weekend synagogue massacre. Protesters outside proclaimed Donald Trump was not welcome in their city. And the president ended up igniting even more controversy while trying to console the community. As Pittsburgh's Jewish community begins to bury its dead, President Trump arrived here trying to provide comfort to those grieving. The president alongside the first lady, his daughter Ivanka, who converted to Judaism, and son-in-law Jared Kushner, visiting the synagogue where 11 congregants were murdered Saturday. The rabbi welcoming them inside before they laid flowers and ceremonial stones to honor each of the victims. Nearby, a rally protesting his trip. Among the dead, Daniel Stein. His nephew Stephen Halley telling me he's outraged at the president's suggestion just hours after the tragedy that the synagogue should have had an armed guard. Donald Trump should have just said, you know, our hearts and prayers go out for the people of Pittsburgh and everybody involved and kept his mouth shut. You felt like he was blaming this community. He is exactly what it felt like. It's a stab in the back. Congressional leaders from both parties declining a White House invitation to join the president today. And tonight, President Trump is facing fierce new criticism for his vow to sign an executive order ending the right to citizenship for babies of non-citizens born on U.S. soil, telling Axios on HBO. We're the only country in the world where a person comes in, has a baby, and the baby is essentially a citizen of the United States for 85 years with all of those benefits. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it has to end. Immediate pushback from top Republican Paul Ryan. Well, you obviously cannot do that. Uh, you cannot end birthright citizenship with an executive order. Legal scholars widely agree the president's plan would violate the 14th Amendment that guarantees citizenship to anyone born inside America's borders. Back here in Pittsburgh, the head of the Jewish agency that protects refugees says the president's announcement is offensive and ignores that the gunman's hatred went beyond anti-Semitism. This murderer was trying to check more than one box. He checked the Jew hate box, but he also checked the refugee hate box and the immigrant hate box. The president igniting new divisions, even as he seeks to console this community. Peter Alexander, NBC News, Pittsburgh. Calgary's potential bid for the 2026 Winter Olympics is on life support tonight. The bid and the plebiscite vote could be cancelled tomorrow. The Olympic Committee met behind closed doors for four hours today but couldn't reach a deal. It all comes down to money and how the taxpayers will foot their $3 billion portion of the $5.2 billion deal. With three levels of government unable to come to an agreement, Calgary's Olympic Committee chair is recommending that the city throw in the towel. 
A tense ride for a Toronto Transit supervisor this morning after the ground opened up and swallowed his vehicle. Marianne Demain explains what caused the car to disappear into a sinkhole almost two meters deep. At first glance, this car stuck in a sinkhole didn't seem too shocking until this happened. In just a matter of minutes, the TTC supervisor vehicle was swallowed whole, submerged by water gushing from a broken water main as it disappeared into the crater. I just thought it was a flood and no big deal, but I didn't realize there's a car in the road. Luckily, the driver of the car made it out safely and was okay. But by then, this section of Commissioner Street between Logan and Bouchette was completely flooded, prompting a quick closure as officials tried to figure out how to cap the leak and get the car out. We've had a rupture on a 300 millimeter, a 12 inch water main. Uh, it's an old, about a hundred year old cast iron water main. Um, and unfortunately, in this case, it's created a void under the road. The crater is about 10 feet by 10 feet and 6 feet deep. And as shocking as it is to see this car submerged in the sinkhole, Toronto Water says this happens several times a year. When a water main breaks, it really digs out the soil and pushes it onto the surface. So you get a void under the, under the road surface. Now, when a car drives over that void, it falls in. Water main breaks are also common. Crews repair about 1,400 a year. In this case on commissioners, the water was shut off in the area. That was the easy part. Getting the car out is the first real challenge before repairs to the water main can begin. So we're going to have to pump that water out to get the car out to make sure that everything's safe and that we can get it out with a crane. For people walking by this waterlogged car, definite water cooler talk among those who still can't believe their eyes. It's shocking to see that it went that deep. There's so much uh, earth that moved underneath. It was crazy. I was just driving to work. Marianne Demain, Global News. A rare sight captured on camera in northern Ontario over the weekend. A white moose and her calf spotted crossing the highway. The couple with the camera pulled over to watch. The moose are not technically albino. Their color is the result of a recessive gene. The Ontario government has banned harvesting any moose in the area that's more than 50% white in order to protect these rare animals. A huge financial boost for the new St. Paul's Hospital today. The London Drugs and Tong and Geraldine Louis Family Foundations donating $6.5 million to the St. Paul's Foundation. The philanthropic gift will support the Provincial Heart Centre at the new hospital, which offers specialized cardiac care, including adult heart transplants. Tong Louis's commitment to cardiac care stems from the treatment and support his wife received while battling congenital heart disease. We see it as critical to be instrumental in providing the means for British Columbians suffering heart disease to be given the gift of time to live their lives fully and to be with their family and loved ones. My father Tong Louis was a tireless supporter and fundraiser for St. Paul's. I believe he and my mother Geraldine would be very proud today. The family's donation will also bolster recruitment and fund cardiac programs and research through professorships and professional education. We are learning more tonight about the couple who plunged to their deaths in Yosemite National Park. A chilling picture has emerged of their final moments, drawing some new scrutiny of the sometimes dangerous selfie trend. It was perhaps the last photo before the woman in the background plunged to her death at Yosemite National Park. She was behind us a little closer to the edge, but I saw her walk up shortly after that. The final moments before the woman and her husband, believed to have been taking a selfie, fell 800 feet off Taft Point. 
It's really tempting to get out right to the edge and to look over and to experience that wonderful feeling. Um, but, you know, trails are built away from the edge for your protection. Meenakshi Morthy and her husband Vishnu Vishwanath travel the world in their spare time taking selfies in breathtaking locales and posting them on their blog. The big picture is that selfies have gotten increasingly dangerous. One study has documented at least 127 deaths, most of them involving young people under 24 years old. The hunt for that jaw-dropping snapshot leading to senseless stunts, many plastered across social media, like these teenagers scaling the Golden Gate Bridge and dangling over the edge. A dangerous trend that in some cases has turned deadly. Gabe Gutierrez, NBC News. You know, we just want to point out that the guy with the train was totally fine. It was the conductor who had stuck his foot out and big boot to, to the side of the head. Of the there. That's right. <laughs> just so you know that. Uh, now, uh, how one woman stopped a suspected porch pirate when she wasn't even home. That's coming up right after Christie's forecast. I didn't know there was a name for it now. Porch, porch, porch piratism. Pirate. Well, it's porch a thing now. Piracy. Yeah. Mm. All right, Christy, we saw you earlier talking about uh, snow on the mountain passes, but yes. hopefully it'll bad weather will hold off for tomorrow. Yes, fingers crossed, but the forecast is getting a little bit worse for Halloween trick-or-treating hours. Let me show you what's going on. Here's a look at the forecast for the lower mainland regions with, of course, a dancing uh, a mummy, of course. So from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m., we are expecting <laughs> temperatures to drop 10 to 9 degrees, so not too bad in terms of temperature, but we do have a chance of showers now, mainly cloudy skies expected. It's one of those scenarios that I wouldn't head out without an umbrella just in case or maybe carry a backpack with a rain jacket in it. Here's a look at what's going on. We've got a wave of moisture that's moving on shore right now. That's going to bring us rain and that's going to bring the snow to the Coquihalla and Allison Pass area. There is a little bit of a break right there but then look at this. We've got tropical moisture that's headed our way. It's not at this point going to push on shore in time for Halloween. Looks like we'll catch this little bit of a break but that's the reason why it's a bit iffy right now. So let's have a look at your Halloween forecast. This underneath the pumpkin is the first wave. That's what we're going to see tonight. It pushes inland and then weakens, as you can see. So by trick-or-treating hours using 7 p.m. as your time frame, we still have a fair amount of cloud and a chance of showers across the south coast. And then from the BC Peace River area down through the Columbia and just touching into the northern Kootenai region. How, what chance of showers, though? Here's the percentage. Those of you across Vancouver Island attend to 40% chance, but the lower mainland, especially the further east you go out towards Hope, a 40 to 60% chance of showers or rain. Now, in through the interior regions, a nice little break. In fact, you may even see a bit of blue sky before sunset, but a 40% chance of showers to 60 up and through the Columbia region and then getting a bit drier as you head down towards the south. Not bad through the north coast and areas west of Prince George, but east of Prince George, that's where we have a chance of showers again. So you can see why it's a bit iffy. And then after that, yes, that potential Pineapple Express is going to move in while we're sleeping Wednesday night and it will be wet on Thursday. Here's a look at this great shot from Dave Chan in Richmond, Cinderella's carriage. And he said this was pumpkin was close to 1,400 pounds and uh, they carved it out and made it look like a carriage. Isn't that nice? Oh, I That's love it. Beautiful. Yeah. Amazing work, Dave. Right, well done. Thanks, Christy. Well, we've all seen the surveillance videos, brazen thieves walking up to homes and stealing packages left on the doorstep. Now, just ahead of the holiday season, officials are warning it's about to get worse. But 
Watch how one woman managed to stop a porch pirate in her tracks without even being home. In this season of online shopping, a warning to would-be porch pirates. Hey, what are you doing? Michelle Tall wasn't at her Texas home, but watched on her ring security doorbell as this woman tried to make off with the delivery stacked by her front door. What are you doing? She used the doorbell speaker to confront her. Is this Deborah's house? No, it's not. Put my packages back on the porch. The woman was apologetic. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Returning the packages. But police say Michelle was lucky. Porch pirates are everywhere this time of year, nabbing deliveries while owners aren't home. Michelle's post went viral. Even though she might not have been too distraught if the woman had gotten away with the goods. Inside those boxes, 35-pound bags of cat litter. Sorry. Not exactly what a would-be thief might want. Kind of like all this attention. Kristen Dahlgren, NBC News, New York. Technology. That letter going for lots on the black market these days? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> some guy in the alley. So we're thinking like it was cat, cat litter she ordered rather than used cat litter that she put out as I believe that to be yes. true, yes. I believe so. Like a big package. She's got a lot of cats, clearly. <laughs> All that cat litter. Hey, I Star. saw that thing on the white moose earlier, and I'm going to use that now. Oh. Why are you so pale? Because finishing touches to mm -hmm. the sports cast? Yes, yes, yes. Boy, this was... Deucing. Well, that was, uh, that was weird today. Uh, we have seen a lot of end-of-season press conferences, post-mortems, if you will, to discuss what went wrong. But we've never seen one quite like the Whitecaps had today. It was kind of like watching a version of the Dr. Phil show. There were tears, there was anger, accusations of cliques and some players not trying hard enough, and there was the captain himself saying he wants out of the Whitecaps organization, even though he's under contract for next year. Kendall Watson is very unhappy with upper management. How unhappy? Try this. What I don't like is two-faced people, you know. So I, I was really angry at some things, different things, and if I don't trust, I better walk away. The Whitecaps apparently lived at Dysfunction Junction this year. It's amazing Alfonso Davies thrived in this atmosphere. Russell Tybert said not everybody on the team was team first. There were a lot of cliques. And he hopes only players who don't just care about themselves are brought back next year. There are a few group of guys, a few members of this team that really do know what it means to be a Vancouver Whitecap. And I want to see those guys here next season. But there has been a lack of respect for the jersey in this season, and that can't happen anymore. Going forward into 2019, you have to respect this jersey and respect this club. One last huddle for Vancouver. Our all, our honor, apparently didn't apply to enough Whitecaps players. If there was one message that rang loud and clear about this side, it's the locker room divide that runs as deep and far as the pitch they play on. At a certain point, it kind of felt like um, guys are here for themselves. And I think when we play, when you play for a team, especially for a club, um, it has, you have to have something that drives you to want to win and build instead of your own personal desires. You know, kind of personal success kind of comes from what's done within the team. Uh, in the teams I've, in teams I've been with before, I've never seen such a, um, a, a, a team that had a lot of clicks. Muddying the waters even further, a captain who publicly wants out. 
Kendall Waston once again making it crystal clear he's done with the Caps, but in the same breath, disagreeing with his teammates about this locker room golf. If somebody's saying that only two or three guys play for the Waikas, hey, it's not right. Or maybe he was playing on, he was the only one that played. So I just leave it. Given you know, what's been... Um What's been suggested here today by the people, the players that came in here previous to me, we have a culture problem. There's no doubt about it. When I say we have a culture problem, the culture problem is within the soccer group. We're not broken here. We're bending, and we need something that's gonna to uh, you know bring this city back to life, bring the fans back to life, and win a championship because the fans, you guys, the team, the club, we deserve it. We need it. It has to happen. Now, one of the other players that spoke was Felipe, and his first year in Vancouver was awful from a personal standpoint. Sadly, three family members, including his father-in-law, died this year. The family dog passed away this year, which added to the sadness in his home life, where his children had trouble adjusting to life in a new city. Felipe talked very honestly about how he had to keep up his family's spirits and play the game at the same time. I always try to be happy. Because when you're happy, you can hide so many things. You know? That's how I learned. Is my... I learned with my father and with so many, so many times in my life. You know? I didn't have my mom and my father with me. I never learned how to be a child because at 15 I was already in Italy not not talking the language not understand nothing and I never had my father and my mom to to be there for me so I learned how to be strong and how to hide things and that's what I did this year with my family to protect them so last night, Brandon Sutter became the latest Canuck to get hurt. Looks like he separated his shoulder on this play. That likely means four to six weeks in the sidelines. I know we can't do the Brandon Sutter thing anymore for a while. Darren Archibald and Brendan Goss have been called up from Utica. He's had a few injuries during his time in Vancouver. When he first started, he was a bit of an Iron Man when he played in Carolina and Pittsburgh. But here's something nice to finish the sportscast off with. This goal last night by Pedersen just brought the house down at Rogers Arena. Blocks a shot, gets the pass from Brock Besser. And the one thing about this kid, at high speed, you'll often see him go as high as he can in the net. The shot up top can't be stopped. 21st player in NHL history to score at least seven goals in his first seven games. Bright spot this season for sure. I feel like the viewers might be okay with us not being able to do the Brandon Sutter song for a while. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, it's received mixed reviews. What? By whom? <laughs> By me. No. I was, I was waiting for that. <laughs> All right, thanks, Squire. It's the end of the road for notorious Boston mob boss James Whitey Bulger. He eluded the FBI for 61 years before finally being captured in 2013. Tonight, the 89-year-old convicted mobster is dead, murdered inside a West Virginia maximum security prison just after he arrived. Mafia Kingpin. 
prolific FBI snitch and famed fugitive Whitey Bulger is dead, killed in a West Virginia federal prison, according to a law enforcement source. Both the FBI and U.S. attorney in West Virginia are investigating. Bulger, who was serving two life sentences for involvement in 11 murders and a laundry list of criminal activity, had only just transferred to the prison on Monday night. His death marks the end of a larger-than-life story. Bulger grew up in gritty South Boston, turning to crime at a young age. When you were a sergeant in Boston, what was his reputation at the time? Brutal uh, in terms of uh, that uh, somebody to be feared, uh, somebody who had his run-ins with the law. Later, Bulger would become an FBI informant, sending rival mafia members to jail as his own criminal enterprise grew. The federal government eventually charged him with crimes in 1995. Tipped off about his imminent arrest, Bulger fled and became a legend. There's a fascination uh, in the United States with gangsters, and whether it's the mafia or the South Boston mob. Uh, and he was the consummate gangster. He was the consummate gangster, and he was the uh, consummate manipulator. His life on the lam, which included vacations like this one to Alcatraz, ended 16 years later. Bulger and his girlfriend arrested in the Santa Monica home, where they had lived for over a decade. Clean living, kids. Clean living. That's a better way. Mm -hmm. We want to pat ourselves on the back uh, very quickly before we go. Uh, we won three Webster Awards last night. for Three? Well, yeah. I still count Clive Jackson. He won the yeah, oh, of course, yeah. Uh, so congratulations to our team here at Global News. Thanks very much. Thanks for trusting us. Have a good night.